0: What will a post-pandemic world look like?
1: Now, something like a pandemic may be taken more seriously, but what about other enormous international challenges? The
0: forces on the front line of coronavirus testing?
1: We have
2: no personal contact with the people in the car at all, other than
3: talking to them on mobile phone.
0: And why is the Pentagon suddenly telling the world about
3: UFOs? Even the idea of extraterrestrial visitation which one can't rule out, doesn't seem as far-fetched as it might have done a few years back.
0: I'm Kate Chabot, and this is SITREP. The coronavirus pandemic is far from over, but already minds are turning to how the world may look once this crisis is in the past. Not least how the world might seek reparations from China, blamed by leaders like Donald Trump for, in his view, failing to contain the spread of the virus.
4: We're doing very serious investigations, as you probably know, and we are not happy with China. We are not happy with that whole situation as we believe it could have been stopped at the source. It could have been stopped quickly and it wouldn't have spread all over the world. And We think that should have happened. Uh, so we'll uh, let you know
0: at the appropriate time, but we are doing serious investigations. Relations between the US and China were pretty poor already, but former UK Foreign Secretary David Miliband, who now leads the International Rescue Committee, warns it would be a mistake to further escalate tensions.
4: We shouldn't be declaring a Cold War against China. That would be a retrograde and... Uh, thing to do. It wouldn't be a wise thing to do. But we do need to rally the world's democracies to work together so that they can negotiate, compete, and cooperate with countries like China on something like an equal basis. If the democracies of the world don't cooperate, they're going to be on the back foot when it comes to a more confident China, which we're undoubtedly
0: seeing. The future relationship with China is only one of the global security issues raised by the coronavirus outbreak, which I discussed earlier with Dr. Karen von Hippel, Director General of the Royal United Services Institute. I started by asking her whether, given Donald Trump's words, some hardening of attitudes is inevitable.
1: Look, I mean, Donald Trump says one thing one day and another thing another day. And so it's really... Uh, hard to take anything he says at face value, or assume that'll be his policy in a month or in three months. I mean, he has gone hot and cold on China so many times. He knows that that the U.S. needs China as a trading partner economically for the long term, but at the same time, you know, he and other leaders feel that China has a lot to answer for.
0: And where does all of this leave countries like the U.K.? So on the one hand increasingly reliant on Chinese investment and trade, on the other hand, having to deal with fluctuating attitudes by a security partner like the US.
1: Angela Merkel said it best when she her, her soundbite was that China would be a competitor and a partner. And I just think all the European countries are going to have to take a more nuanced approach. China has has adopted a bit of a divide and rule in Europe policy. They set up this 16 plus 1, now 17 plus 1, Group of countries, most of them are not in the European Union, but some of them are, like Greece and Portugal. And they use that as a a way of preventing the Europeans from having a single voice. Now, the Europeans are much more aware of the negative impacts of a lot of the Chinese investments over the years, countries like Germany um, and France in, in particular. And so I think they will be more wary. But countries like Serbia and Greece and Portugal, will obviously potentially rally around. They're grateful for Chinese support. The EU itself isn't able to speak with one voice on China. It has tried in EU documents, but it often gets blocked by those countries that have been the, the beneficiaries of Chinese largesse over the last few years.
0: So in that light, to what extent do you think the pandemic is really going to change the geopolitical landscape and either accelerate what China intends or perhaps change it slightly?
1: It's a really good question. And I think, you know, we really I mean, I hate saying that we really don't know, but we really don't know. I mean, I think some countries are going to really think carefully about decoupling from China. Other countries are going to think that China should make some sort of reparations and maybe call for something like that. So I think we're going to be in an interesting situation for some time until there is some sort of uh, review conducted by the UN and others about the source of this and what we could do better next time.
0: In a recent webinar that you had at Russi, it was suggested that the way that Vladimir Putin will play this will be very interesting, whether he'll actually entertain the idea of a global effort to combat the coronavirus or actually just think this is an opportunity for, for more foreign adventures to boost my standing at home because the country is economically in trouble.
1: Yes, I've never seen Vladimir Putin display any real humanitarian tendencies, so it's hard for me to imagine that he does anything that doesn't benefit him personally and keep him in power. Uh, So it's hard for me to imagine that coming from him, nor from the United States and several other countries. I think a lot will depend on what happens in the U.S. elections later in the year. If Trump wins, we'll see further fragmentation, more competition, more populism. Whereas I think if Biden wins, I think the U.S. will make an enormous effort to re-engage with international partners. I mean, none of us can solve this problem on our own. We're all totally dependent on each other. Yeah, you know, we really need to partner, and there's been really very little partnership at all going on. Nor has the UN really stepped up to the plate and tried to provide the leadership that's necessary right now.
0: Mm, and to talk about the nuts and bolts of how this might affect Britain's defence, the review is likely to be postponed, probably for for a year or more. It'll have to consider a post pandemic world, uh, but one where past promises to boost defence spending just may be impossible.
1: Yeah, I mean, it may be impossible for many countries that will have to spend much more money on social welfare, on unemployment benefits, on health systems, and cut back on military spending. And, you know, it'll be easier if you're in an authoritarian state like China, but even the Chinese will be under a lot of pressure because, of course, if people can't buy Chinese goods, they they will also have to retrench and cut back on their spending. So I think most countries will be in the same boat for some time to come. And, you know, how long it lasts and how deep of a recession it may be is really anyone's guess right now.
0: And to what extent do you think that Defence Review, when we do have it, will have to examine wider issues like resilience? For example, it seems that our preparedness for the pandemic had been largely neglected in recent years. Isn't that something that Defence will really have to consider for the future?
1: Yes, they will have to consider it, whether it stays in the review. Look, it was in the 2010 SDSR and it, it was listed as a tier one threat. Um, and then somehow... Like in the U.S. national security strategy, pandemics were considered a tier one threat, and, and both countries were woefully unprepared for this pandemic. So, you know, the day-to-day exigencies end up pushing out these long-term things that may not happen that are really considered more unpalatable. Uh, so I think now something like a pandemic may be taken more seriously. But what about other enormous international challenges? You know, say the electricity supply goes down or there's a global Internet crash. I mean, there are a number of other black sky hazards, which is what some people call them. Overall, none of us are prepared for those. And we are. We all have to work together to manage those. And I just don't see that happening with the current leaders that we have right now in most of the world.
0: That was Dr. Karen von Hippel from RUSI speaking to me earlier. I'm joined by BFPS defence analyst Christopher Lee. Uh, Christopher, there are hundreds of military planners now embedded across national, devolved and local government, as well as the NHS. How much common ground is there between the NHS and the military?
4: The military and the NHS have one thing in common uh, and that is, they understand coordination, they understand command and control, they understand crisis, that's what they're both there for. They, one deals with a crisis with a gun, the other one probably patches people up, having the guns having been used. Whichever way you look at it, the NHS, they understand who's in command, who to turn to. The military understand exactly the same thing, working up from a platoon level right up to general. And so I think that we're only gradually understanding how closely the NHS and the military are uh, committing this. When we look ahead, we have a problem. We're not good at reading the future. If you say to the military, for example, uh, where is the threat in the long term? They go out and they count the other side's uh, guns, their their, their tanks, their aircraft, their their frigates, and that's enough for them. If you go to the, the medics, and say, look, tell us what your problem is going to be, let's say, in two years' time. They can't tell you. There is no telling that they know how to fix it.
0: Just to move on to the subject of of geopolitics, Donald Trump talks up the idea of taking China to task over the coronavirus. How much of that is electioneering, do you think, and how much is actually genuine?
4: Uh, Donald Trump gets up and says about once, once every 10 days, the Chinese are trying to get me unelectable. They're trying to sort of stop me being elected again. And that's at the basis of everything Donald Trump's about. The election is, is, is in this coming November. Uh, what's he going to do about it? The economy is going to hell in a handbasket. Uh, China is actually getting ahead on it, and he can't do anything about it. You've got to remember that we are very, very bad, including do- Donald Trump's people, at reading China. China follows the money. The Europeans are not together. Senator Biden who is going to be facing him, who is Obama's vice president. Obama is good at NATO. He's good at the G20. He's good at the G7. He's good at the World Bank. He knows what they are do and what they're for. And that is his threat. And that's linked to, to, to what um, Trump thinks of China.
0: And just briefly, Christopher, we heard Karen von Hippel talk about what Russia may do. Now the chief of the air staffs condemned Moscow after two maritime patrol bombers were intercepted off Scotland. I mean, quite frankly, that's what
4: happens all the time you test each other, you're all in the same crisis, so you look and say, how will my potential enemy react? So it's business as usual then? (laughs) It is business as usual and it sounds business as, as usual from the Chief of the air staff as well.
0: OK, stay with us. Now, another NHS Nightingale Hospital opened this week, built with support from the military. More than 100 personnel are being deployed to assist health workers at the hospital in Bristol. Last week, we talked about what else the military could do to support the national response to the pandemic. Since then, they've been given another important task, setting up almost 100 coronavirus testing centres. It's a big job and a complex one, as Paul Paul Osborne explains.
5: Ministers turned to the military to try to keep their promise to deliver 100,000 coronavirus tests every day by the end of April. The key to keeping that promise is the mobile testing units. They promised to deliver results within 48 hours, but it's all had to be set up very quickly, according to Brigadier Lizzie Faithful-Davis commander of 102 Logistic Brigade.
6: A couple of challenges that our military personnel will face with rolling out these test centres, they are a very new initiative. We originally started with a target of 48 of these mobile testing units, that's doubled already to 96 uh, by the 4th of May, Uh, and the challenge for our personnel is becoming familiar with the equipment and recognising the need to create a, a bespoke mobile setup dependent on the geographic location that they arrive at.
5: So over the last few days, personnel have been trained to operate the testing facilities. Lieutenant Colonel Pete Brunton commands 16 Signals Regiment.
3: Fundamentally, we've got some fantastic, intelligent, adaptable and dedicated soldiers who are more than used to both interfacing with the public um, and to learning new drills and new skills, practising them and then being able to apply them um, again and again in any condition. So whilst this task is, is outside of our normal remit of providing communications the fundamental approach that we're adopting is is no different to any other of our core tasks.
5: That may be true, but there are unique challenges to this job.
6: The other area which I think is really valuable and will be challenging for our soldiers is dealing uh, with the general public who are COVID-19 potential sufferers. Many of those people may be quite anxious about appearing for a test uh, and it will be important for our soldiers to put them at ease as they go through that testing process.
5: It is a tricky balancing act though, easing people's worries while keeping everyone safe wo 2 Lyndon Robinson from 4th Battalion the Yorkshire Regiment is working at a test site in Scarborough.
2: The guys all get into PPE, set up the different testing areas and an area where people can go to the different bays and self test. We give them the testing kit through the little gap in the window, shut the window, they then drive off with an instruction pack to self test within their car.
5: He says it's been designed to keep personnel as safe as possible.
2: We have no personal contact with the people in the car at all other than talking to them on a mobile phone and the only time to lower the window is for us to put the test through and for them to post the test back
5: out. More than 10 million key workers and their households are eligible for tests but the government's online booking system was overwhelmed in just a few minutes when it went live for the first time a week ago. Mobile testing sites can visit care homes, police stations, prisons, sites where it's claimed the scale of the coronavirus crisis has, until now, been underreported. Lizzie Faithful-Davis sees this as an ideal role for the military.
6: The discipline of our soldiers uh, will step to the forefront in being able to learn quickly how to set up this testing facility uh, to provide some command and control uh, to manage the sites so that they run efficiently and smoothly and the experience is uh, as effective as possible for the individuals that need to come for testing.
5: And for personnel like Lyndon Robinson in Scarborough, it's a chance to play his own role in the national response to the crisis.
2: If I could say one thing to uh, the key workers, keep up the tremendous work. You're doing an immense job, the uh, the whole country are right behind you. Every single person, from the newest-born person to a pension at 100 and odd, are supporting you. We're, we're right behind you and keep the work going.
0: That was Lyndon Robinson ending that report by Paul Osborne. This is Is While debate in the UK centres on when and how the lockdown may be eased, British military communities around the world continue to operate under the same restrictions as everyone else. Some of the toughest are in Brunei, which had made things rather complicated for personnel returning there
7: this week. From there, Jade Calloway. The reason that Brunei is in a good position with very few new cases, only seven in April in its entirety, is probably down to the very strict measures that have been put in place early on. In particular, I think it's down to the locking down of the borders. There has been special permission granted, though, for a flight to come in this week. That's due to land on Friday and it will be bringing in 124 passengers, the majority of which got stuck outside at the time that the border's closed down. Some in Nepal for our Gurkha colleagues and some in the UK. For the passengers that are coming in, it's going to be an interesting time because they have to go into two weeks of mandatory isolation in a government facility. That government facility is actually hotels that the Brunei government are using. So they'll be going into a hotel for 14 days And they'll also be tested before they come out of there. There's quite a big cost associated with that because there are charges for the accommodation and food, daily charges for that for the minimum of 14 days. There's also a $1,000 fee, which is to cover the cost of testing. So that's been an interesting one and a development that's come in in the last couple of weeks that either the individual's or the garrison will be having to pay for. Jake Calloway there. Let's now get an update from Frank McCarthy, who's on the
0: Falkland Islands.
8: Work for the military here is pretty much as it was, with the addition of social distancing and stringent rules over cleaning down workspaces after use. People are generally just getting on with it. I think the worst part for most is that end-of-tour dates and R&R have been cancelled, for the time being anyway, And pretty much everyone here is away from home. 96% of personnel here in the Falkland Islands are only here for six months. And it makes the 8,000 miles of separation feel a lot further away. At least for the military, there's an end in sight. But for the contractors who are here for many years at a time, there's still a lot of uncertainty as to when they'll see their families again. Life, however, certainly isn't normal on Mount Pleasant Complex. Most things that people might have done of an evening or a weekend have disappeared... Six weeks later, though, I suppose morale starting to pick up a little bit again is gradually getting better. Initially, it was low because everyone was working in their normal jobs. Then suddenly everything going on after work was completely removed. The children here at Biffside are all homeschooling and there are programmes set out by the local service children's education teachers. Add to that the addition of BFBS TV providing BBC bite-sized as of this week. The base is on lockdown and only urgent cases are permitted to drive to Stanley, which is about an hour's drive away. It's an odd time to be in the Falklands right now, as I'm sure it is in many other locations worldwide. But we remain safe in the new processes and optimistic of the future eventually returning to some kind of normal.
0: That was Frank McCarthy in the Falklands. Let's return to the amazing story of Captain Tom Moore. Two weeks ago, he completed 100 laps of his garden, raising £30 million for NHS charities. Today, he turns 100. The Prime Minister among those paying tribute.
5: I know I speak for the whole country when I say, we wish you a very happy 100th birthday. Your heroic efforts have lifted the spirits of the entire nation. You've created a channel to enable millions to say a heartfelt thank you to the remarkable men and women in our NHS who are doing the most astounding job.
0: Well, on his birthday, he's been given the honorary rank of Colonel.
2: I was
5: very moved
4: by that because you get the... The honorary rank of colonel in, in my regiment is something which I would never, ever anticipate. I really am honoured by that. If people call me colonel. That will be great, will not it?
0: And earlier, a hurricane and spitfire flew over his home in Bedfordshire.
4: Few people here who've seen a uh, uh, hurricane and fleetfires flying fast in anger. Fortunately, today they're all flying peacefully.
0: Well, around 150,000 birthday cards have arrived for Captain Tom, and he's got a number one single for his birthday. The man with the job of delivering those cards is the local postmaster, Bill Chandy. He spoke to Simon Marlowe.
9: This is the biggest thing ever happened to me, and I don't think anything bigger than this can ever happen either. Who would have thought that Bill Chandy, the postmaster of Master Morton, will be going through this, this stage? <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
8: So you've obviously known him. He's been coming into your place many times, I would have thought, over the years. Tell, tell us what he's like.
9: Uh, Tom is a he's a true gentleman. He's been coming to the post office for at least, uh, at least 20 years now. He always has time for you. You know, he's uh, one of those calm and collective... Warm-hearted. So how are you handling it all? At first, we thought, well, it was, should we, it'll be a doddle. And when we started with a little trickle and then a small stream, and then suddenly we were getting thousands a day, seven, eight, ten thousand, fifteen thousand cards a day. At first, the mail was coming to me at the delivery office in Marston and all addressed to Captain Tom at the post office, Master Mortain. And then what happened was uh, Hannah's son, who goes to the Bedford School, They approach the school and see if they can use the uh, school facilities to actually display the cards and everything else. It's about, we're approximately 130,000 cards up to now, but then now they're actually venturing into the classrooms now because there's no more space left in the hall.
0: <laughs> that was Captain Tom Moore's postie, Bill Chandy, speaking to Simon Marlow. Christopher Lee, our defence analyst, is still here. Christopher, those cards are a physical expression of the way Captain Tom provides a rare moment of optimism, aren't they?
4: And a reminder that there's still a need, need for a post office. This always happens in wartime. A character emerges... And they become, sometimes they become the name that people remember long after. Years ago in the war against Korea, HMS Amazon went up the Yangtze River and the hero was the cat. And it's that sort of thing that grips the public imagination. I tell you, when this is all over, the person that people will remember in 10 years' time will be Honorary Colonel uh, Tom Moore.
0: Now, why has the Pentagon suddenly declassified three videos that might show U.S. Navy pilots encountering UFOs? They've been circulating online already, but American defense chiefs have now confirmed they're authentic. The videos are of flights in 2004 and 2015, and the pilots seemingly had no idea what they were looking at.
5: There's a whole fleet of them. Look
0: on
5: the ASA. Oh my gosh. Look thing, dude. thing. It's rotating.
0: So what did those pilots encounter? I spoke to Nick Pope, who worked for the Ministry of Defence for more than 20 years and in the early 1990s was posted to the division that investigates UFOs.
3: Well, it's quite extraordinary. It is literally forward-looking infrared camera footage taken from US Navy jets showing them chasing a fast-moving unidentified object of some sort. And we've got three things all together. The pilot testimony, some of them had visual sightings, radar data, and the Ford looking infrared camera footage. Uh, They describe sometimes high speeds, but sometimes hovering, uh, sharp manoeuvres, really quite extraordinary. And you can hear the excitement in their voice. I mean, And these are people, obviously the top guns, not easily impressed.
0: Indeed. And these videos have been around for a long time. But how significant is it that the Pentagon has now confirmed their credibility, seemingly?
3: It's hugely significant. I mean, previously this was, uh, the phrase they used was unauthorized, but now for them to put it on their own website, to make a proactive announcement about this to the world's media. I mean, the UFO community talk about disclosure. I'm I'm not saying that's what we're dealing with, but it is obviously giving this an official stamp of approval. And they're quite open in saying, we still don't know what these things were.
0: And why would they do this, though? Because it's not the normal way to respond to questions about UFOs, is it? Far from it.
3: Usually these things are denied, debunked, downplayed, if you can get a comment at all. But it seems here as if the US government is deliberately putting this out uh, front and centre, taking ownership of this story, And, and particularly with the world's media uh, currently focused on coronavirus, of course. It's interesting. Some conspiracy theorists say maybe it was just a a good day to bury bad news, but others say, no, people are so fed up with the 24-7 coronavirus coverage that it's almost as if they want to change the narrative. And again, I, why? From your experience, then, what's your take on it? To me, some of this has the hallmarks of some sort of intelligence operation, uh, maybe a psy- PSYOP, of some sort, a psychological operation to see how people would react. Uh, maybe a deception operation. I mean, the question arises with this. What's the real intended audience? Is, is it uh, the world's media? Is it Russia? Is it China? And if it is, what message are they trying to send? I mean, is, is one of the theories doing the rounds, of course, is, is that this is some secret black project, US technology, been blind tested against the fleet. We hear a lot about hypersonic missiles, for example. Is this the US government trying to send a message about some of this? There is uh, talk that there may be a second Pentagon statement coming imminently clarifying the role of their mysterious A-tip program, Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. They told Congress it was about next generation aviation threats. But there is good evidence that I've seen to suggest it was a UFO program.
0: Just tell us a bit more about this tip program.
3: Well, the existence of the tip program emerged about two and a half years ago. And um, the Department of Defense, frankly, have flip-flopped on this a number of times as to whether it did or didn't investigate UFOs. They've tried to spin it, certainly as being about next-generation aerospace threats to the US, so, so sort of you know Russian and Chinese aircraft, missiles, and drones. But there is some fairly good evidence to suggest that it did look at UFOs. The Pentagon's current line is that uh, it, it was not UFO-related. They may be about to walk that back. And uh, that in itself is interesting. I mean, two and a half years ago, the official line was nobody in the US government was even interested in this, let alone looking at it. Now we've gone complete 180 degree turn from that.
0: Honestly, do you think this lends any credibility to the idea of visitors from another world?
3: Well, yes and no. I mean, on the one hand, of course, unidentified means just that, nothing more, nothing less. We don't know what these things are, but... I guess the Pentagon themselves haven't ruled out the extraterrestrial hypothesis. And, you know, a few years ago, this would have been fringe stuff. People would have been laughing. But now with the Department of Defense putting it on their own website and the Pentagon speaking quite openly, some of the pilots and radar operators coming forward, it has shifted the agenda. So so even the idea of extraterrestrial visitation, which one can't rule out, doesn't seem as far-fetched as it might have done a few years back.
0: That was Nick Pope. Uh, Christopher Lee, what do you make of all of this? Black ops or evidence of a visitation from another world?
4: AATIP uh, wasn't designed to look for UFOs. But when people saw things, the, the ATIP technology was actually used to see what they were seeing. I was in a place called Lathrop Wells, which is in Death Valley, not far, a uh, morning's drive from uh, Las Vegas. And it's a missile development base. One day, one of the scientists said to me, he said, have you been over to uh, Plant Bravo? I said, no. He said, I don't think they'll let you in there. He said, that's the stuff that's arrived and we don't know what it is. This whole thing is, is absolutely marvellous and it's even more so for real because this is the 30th anniversary of the launch of the Hubble telescope. It's only 500 miles up in space. When it went there, we couldn't see a thing. Since it's been there, it's identified 36,000 galaxies. What's coming from those galaxies may be in the files that they're releasing at the uh, Pentagon.
0: Now, just before we go, Christopher, the story of the British ambassador to Portugal, who's become a social media sensation by performing a song with huge political significance in the country. Tell us. It's
4: really... We'll meet again.
0: But he was playing a song that was sort of inciting people to, to, to peacefully protest in the 70s, wasn't he?
4: Well, that's right. And, but, but then the, the song that Vera Lynn was singing, which was very sweet, Me, We'll meet again, don't know where, don't know when, was inciting people to say, don't give up, which is a low point in our, in, in our lives. And this is a great thing that countries have done all the time. I remember as a tiny kid, tiny kid listen, in, in, in Cuba at the time of Castro was getting in they used to sing Viva Castro but Vera Lynn was the one that kept kept the United Kingdom going
0: and indeed plans announced this week for a virtual V Day anniversary event next week and we'll all need to practice our Vera Lynn won't we Christopher do you want to give it a go <laughs>
4: we'll meet again you're going to love this don't know where don't know when but I know we'll meet again some sunny day keep Smiling through, just like you always do, (laughs) some hope, till the blue skies drive the dark clouds far away. You'll be pleased to know I know a heck of a lot more of
0: this. And that is it for this week. Till we meet again next week, thanks to Christopher and all of this week's guests. Don't forget you can listen again at bfbs.com slash sitrep or sign up for the podcast on your phone or tablet. Until next time, bye-bye. Thanks for listening.